0: Welcome to Lean Back, I'm Lisa and I'm Laura. Uh, Laura and I decided to get together today to talk about the election of Donald Trump. We really hadn't thought about recording until the beginning of 2017 for season three, but the situation is so dire that we decided that we should probably sit down and talk about this particular historical moment, how we're feeling about it, and um, how I suspect some of you uh, might be feeling about it mostly to try and think through responses to the situation and what kinds of actions that we need to take to um, try and preserve a semblance of social
1: responsibility. We were all probably surprised in some way by the outcome of the US election. I'm curious about what your initial reaction is to the possibility of a Trump presidency?
0: Well, so I had made arguments in January and February online that I thought a Trump presidency was definitely possible and also likely. And a lot of the professionals in my field sort of shouted me down. A lot of them were very vocal Hillary supporters, which is all well and fine. But at the end of the day, it ended up that he obviously won the electoral college. And I was with them, actually. And so, yeah, I didn't want to be right <laughs> that he was gonna win. But I also come from the Midwest. I come from Ohio in a red state, in a red town. And unlike some of my colleagues who generally only surround themselves with people who think and talk like them, I spend a lot of time with people who don't think like I do. And so for me, it felt much more plausible that he would be able to pull out a victory. I also think that a lot of liberals were over reliant on polls and those polls were asking bad questions. (laughs) And So the data to me at best had her polling for almost a year within the margin of error which is not a safe space for any kind of candidate, certainly not a presidential one. So of course I was devastated that he won, but I wasn't surprised that it happened. And I feel like among
1: my colleagues, I was the only one who was not surprised. So a lot of your colleagues and your friends and your peers are Democrats. And I wonder if you have parsed their reactions to the election yet, if you have a response to how they're reacting.
0: I mean, you know, a lot of them are grieving, and political grieving is a thing that happens, but I feel like for a lot of the folks that I know, there was a process of over-identification with Hillary, and I understand why. I mean, it was exciting to have the first female presidential candidate, and she's qualified, and, you know, there's certainly a lot to be made about that kind of historical moment and the the possibility to make history that way, but the over-identification with her led them to ignore data that would have, have drawn different conclusions, conclusions that ultimately ended up being the case. And so I think over-identification with Hillary, for especially for a lot of the women, you know, that I know that do political work is a problem. The other thing is, is that I just think that Democrats navel gaze the same way Republicans do. And so if there's anything that I can say about the similarities between the way in which people get their media, it's that a lot of hardcore, Died, in the wool democrats read things that reinforce their preconceived notions just like republicans do and they're very very ideologically calcified and often without good reason (laughs) so you know i don't have a lot of patience for that i'm critical of liberalism all the time i write about it i speak out about it you know i consult about it and i think that liberals in particular want to harness a righteous anger about social change when it tilts towards the conservative backlash cycle when they completely disregard their own culpability in creating that cycle themselves. So whether that's choosing Hillary as a candidate again, the cycle, or whether that's not running enough people on the down ballot for a lot of the races, or whether whatever that is, whether it's electoral strategy, or whether it's ideological predisposition, I just feel like Democrats also do not think or talk to other people in ways that help inform their electioneering, and to their own detriment. Over and over and over again, the Democrats refuse to pivot or be flexible in their approach to politics, and they also are clicky, and so they keep people out of the party who would be good leaders and good soldiers and good worker bees and and they keep them out because they do tend towards elitism. And so when the right charges them of being elites, that sticks for a lot of people.
1: You talk about how the Democrats are unwilling to be flexible, but also I feel like they're not willing to be downright immoral because I feel like party politics in recent history has been aggressive at changing voting policy districting I mean like the bureaucracy of politics a state and local level which has been largely Republican for a long time and by a long time I mean in my life yeah. lifespan. So, <laughs> so I mean long. not Actually, a long, not long time but Long enough to make a fundamental change. Bureaucratic workings of voting politics and districting Republicans have been very aggressive. And so I wonder if you think if Democrats have a general lack of flexibility or if they're just unwilling to be as aggressive.
0: I don't, I mean, I don't even know that it's that because there are two issues. One is about you know, how does, a pre- how does something like the Trump presidency even come into being, and then one is about the, the mechanisms by which um, democratic life in America is structured through bureaucracy. And the question about Trump's presidency is one about feeling, and Democrats don't nominate charismatic figures. The reason Barack Obama won is because he was charismatic. He wasn't particularly qualified. He was super young right as a junior senator he didn't have a huge network but he was charismatic and he had some good ideas and he was able to capture the national imagination at a time when they wanted to hear messages of optimism of hope and Trump did the same thing he capitalized on alienation and um, hatred and people who feel like they have been rolled over by capitalist machinery and he amplified that alienation back at them. In some ways I just feel like Trump is a mirror of our ambivalence about whiteness, about labor, about what we want as a nation, <laughs> about ethics. I mean, he's just mirroring that ambivalence back to the American people and it, that feels familiar to them because they a lot of them who voted for him feel that ambivalence themselves. As for the mechanics of the democracy, I mean, there's no reason why the Obama administration shouldn't have taken up redistricting, and they didn't, and they only announced it, you know, in spring of this year that they were thinking about doing it if Hillary won, and that's too late. So there is one sense that at the level of political participation, the Democrats haven't done well. But the Democrats have not expanded rights, really, since the '60s, since LBJ. There are no instances. Of the Democratic Party expanding rights. There's some local ones, there's some small things, but as a political orientation or as a program, they haven't done it. They certainly haven't done it with abortion rights. They're weak on voting rights. I mean, they're anti-voter ID, but they're not expanding it. They're not doing automatic registry to vote. I mean, a lot of the progress has been through the legal system. Yeah. It's been through lawsuits. Yeah. So it's it's not like they have a good track record there. The other thing is, is the Democratic Party really does not know how to do coalition building in this, you know, in this terrain of identity politics. Barack could do it, but he was sort of a different kind of candidate. Not just because he was the first black president, but because but he also motivated an entirely different segment of donors and, you know, young people. And he did not use some of the traditional avenues of power that. For example, Clinton mobilized again in this election. So, you know, if they want to rebuild, they're going to have to recenter charismatic politics. And they are going to have to find younger people who capitalize on the American imaginary. And they're going to have an opportunity to do it because this is going to be a fairly dystopian presidency. And so there will be opportunities for the Democrats to regroup. It's just a question of who holds the microphone. It can't be Nancy Pelosi. It cannot be Howard Dean. There is a sense that that generation of baby boomer white people are not leading the party in a direction that makes people want to come out and vote for them. (laughs) So if they want to adapt and win, they're going to have to change
1: their recruitment strategies and their networks, and I just don't know that they will. So uh, you talk about Obama being electable for the Democrats because he was a charismatic figure, Mm -hmm. even though he lacked. Uh, some degree of experience and I wonder how you read Hillary Clinton as a candidate with significant experience, perhaps the most experience of any candidate for the president in recent history but a candidate who lacks according to popular perception some amount of charisma and I wonder how you read that given that we often talk about how women are disenfranchised And uh, disempowered in certain ways because of uh, similar perceptions.
0: So Americans generally prefer style over substance. So that's a real thing. Gender was a factor, but I don't think it was a factor in the way that people want. She did not lose because she was a woman. There were so many other factors surrounding her candidacy that were problematic above and beyond the fact that she was a girl. And that I think actually mattered as much, if not more. She um, reads as unlikable. For sure. And she has a hard time connecting with large audiences. She also has a mistrust of the media. I'm not saying that that's not an understandable thing, given the kind of political life she's had and the tremendous amount of scrutiny and the muckraking that has happened around her that was politically motivated and targeted. And she was the best candidate in terms of substance the Democrats have had in a very long time. However, at the end of the day, it was a change election. It was going to be a change election no matter what. It was the first black president. It was a, s- a signal to America that we were willing to give actual political power to black people. So, yeah, there was going to be a backlash to that. There's no doubt about it. And and they did not read the tea leaves. The Democratic Party did not read the tea leaves well about what that meant. It was not a question of technical policy decisions. She was having a totally different conversation than the one that he was having, and she had no sense that America wanted to have the one that he was having. And and that is a, that's a miscalculation, you know, that ultimately influenced the Electoral College. But she also won almost 2 million more votes, the popular vote. So there is a sense, I'm sure for her, of tremendous disappointment, given how well she felt like she connected with people who actually ended up voting for her. And so... Of course, we're going to have a long, prolonged, ultimately probably not fruitful conversation about the electoral college and how it works. Um, but at the end of the day, she couldn't she couldn't close the deal. That's also, you know, not to say that there weren't obviously this Russia hacking thing is mental, and you know the Comey emails were completely about sabotaging her campaign. It's absurd to just write her loss off as her personal failure. But there were a tremendous number of miscalculations and tactical errors that plagued her campaign, which is why she was really within the margin of error for almost the entirety of the general election.
1: Most of my shock about the campaign was that Donald Trump was even allowed to have the same kind of platform. Oh, yeah, you know, that he was allowed on the TV and allowed to like have a platform that millions of Americans had access to. That he was granted the same kind of legitimacy that G was, and he was a host on SNL. And I know SNL's been like a comfort for a lot of people, um, in the absurdity, especially with Dave Chappelle, and he handled it very gracefully. I mean, he was granted legitimacy time and time again. Mm-hmm. He's the the- man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he was allowed on the same platform.
0: I feel like America is fundamentally an anti-intellectual place. I feel like it has always had a very clearly, virulently racist undertone to it. I mean, the founding documents are full of xenophobia and racism and sexism. And so anybody who's surprised about it has not been paying attention to how really violent American public culture is. And they papered over it with colorblindness or whatever. But at the end of the day, the aspirational politics of whiteness make Trump an attractive demagogue. And I understand why those people want to consolidate their power in a time when America is browning. And in a time when black people have been given political rights in a significant and symbolic way, in a time when the major success of affirmative action has been the social promotion of white women, right? I mean, the backlash against women in the workplace continues, and it's a real thing. The convenient target of, you know, Muslims or Muslim Americans or immigrants, I mean, it's just all so facile and so obvious and so banal. I was talking the other day about Hannah arendt's um essay on the banality of evil, and I'm just like, this is how it is. Evil is this banal bureaucratic gerrymandering voter i d crass shouting about building a wall it is it's it is nonsense that's how evil is. It's not some like profound Darth Vader situation; it is in the most mundane details of everyday life. And the fact that white people were so upset about the turn of events, especially, obviously, the white people who voted for Clinton, they were so upset and so so and are so freaked out because they don't ever have to be uncomfortable. They never confront evil. They're not spit upon, they're not grabbed, they're not physically assaulted in the same way as people of color at all. So their proximity to that kind of specter of violence is not the same. And so they can't, they have no framework from which to understand the kind of loss of privilege that they're about to endure. They don't, they don't think about the historical models that, of course, exist. And anytime we have this resistance to progressivist moments, and God knows the Obama administration was only marginally progressive, um, and so they have no framework to work through their grief or what they feel is a loss to their own privilege and power. And so that's been the very interesting thing for me is watching liberals grieve their privilege, white liberals. I understand you can have private feelings that your candidate lost and certainly private and public feelings about what the future might look like. But white people taking up so much space about their dismay about the electoral results struck me as so white and so self-indulgent and so out of touch. Even when... It was couched in the language of fear for community or people of color. It was still extremely self indulgent and unself aware, grieving. And that speaks to the problem more largely about liberalism and how it suits white people's interests. You cannot call black men super predators and then somehow try and build a coalition of black people. That is an unreasonable expectation. She didn't apologize for it. She didn't roll back for it. And they didn't show up for her in the numbers that they did for Barack. That is a predictable consequence of a rhetorical action that was made with total knowledge that it was the wrong decision to do for the 1994 crime bill. So, I I mean, she did that thing, among others. You know, DOMA, you don't get to run away from DOMA. You're an architect of one of the most hateful anti-LGBTQ structures in American culture. And the thing is, is that Clinton tried to sell herself as not part of the dynasty. And you can be part of a Republican dynasty. The Bushes have done it. Gosh knows. But as a Democrat and the Democratic Party, we don't do that hereditary leadership thing. It's fundamentally anti-democratic. And they were doing that. And which that's why all of his scandals got mapped onto her. All of his sex stuff canceled out Trump's. All of that blame on Bill shifted to Hillary. And the fact that they didn't understand that, that was going to happen was a tactical error.
1: It's interesting that you say that because Hillary's history in that way made her an incompatible candidate for the Democratic Party. But at the same time, Trump ran on a platform that indicated that he that he was against the establishment. He was Mm anti-establishment. And yet, I mean, he for, I mean, his entire livelihood Has been, as a reckless businessman, who has... He's been careless. He's... Loathsome. Yeah, I mean, he is the definition of the establishment. It's hard for me to understand how people who are voting anti-establishment could vote for someone who is fundamentally establishment and who is a rich white man who doesn't actually care about anyone outside. I mean, doesn't care about anything outside of his own interests, especially financial interests.
0: Yeah. But, but the thing is, is that he actually is an outsider politically. I mean, he's not financially, but he is politically. He's not networked with a K Street lobbyist. He's not, he's not in DC. He has no networks in political power that way. You know, certainly he schmoozes with them at dinners and fundraisers and things, but they're not, he's not a part of them in the same way that the Clintons are. And that's apparent. Even if the voters can't articulate the difference, it is different because he's like throwing Trump into DC is like throwing a basically a human grenade into politics. And they wanted to see it explode. And some of them thought about the consequences and how it would benefit them. And some of them didn't, but that's ultimately what it's going to be. The other thing is, is that voters are not philosophically consistent. They are not, nobody demands that they be, (laughs) there is no requirement that they be, so on the one hand, he is this giant, chaotic grenade, right that's thrown into D.C. And then on the other hand, they reelected incumbents 96 percent, which is all about stasis in the establishment. So there is no there's, there's no consistency to that whatsoever. They wanted both things. They wanted Congress to stay gridlocked, and they wanted a guy representing America who was crass and loud and brutal, and um, unchecked political power, because that's what the white people who voted for him want for themselves. They want to be crass and brutal, and they want unchecked political power, and they don't want to do power sharing. And Democrats fundamentally do not understand that. They don't understand how to share power, and they don't understand how to hoard power, which leaves them in this limbo where they lose elections, because they can't do either one very well. you know, And so they... They stay riding the fence, and they try and, just like Clinton moved to the center, they try and cannibalize GOP ground, and that doesn't get them very far because you can't outright the right. This was Bernie's problem. Bernie wanted to do populism, and he wanted to do that white male outrage, right? So who would he have poached? The same people that Trump was recruiting to vote for him? Who does anger better, Bernie or Trump? I'm sorry, but it's totally Trump. So that was an affective field, an emotional space that Donald Trump occupied in the right way at the right time and capitalized on feelings of a shifting cultural moment. And it's not like it's just happening in the U.S. It happened in Poland. It happened with Brexit. It's about to happen in Germany and France. It is a movement to consolidate capital. And, and those people who voted for Trump wanted to consolidate capital behind the super white sexist bigoted businessman that's what they want and people who voted for hillary some of them wanted her for all the symbolic reasons that we talked about and some wanted her because she's an extremely capable technocrat and some were just like oh god not him and that is not the way to build a winning coalition at the electoral college level even if it does win you more votes overall and so I feel some empathy for Hillary because I'm sure that it's difficult to be her today waking up to, you know, winning so many more votes in the popular tally and yet being screwed over by the electoral college in a time where this shift of power is going to be totally critical. And I'm we're not going to be able to see it reverse for my entire lifetime. I mean, it's going to be two generations before there is even a possibility to reverse the amount of damage that's about to be done to U.S.
1: institutions. What do you anticipate? Is there something that you fear in particular from Donald Trump? Or is it, is it the, the symbolism, the electorate, that allowed him to become the president?
0: No, because the electorate is the electorate. The electorate stays the same all the time. OK, it's not the the electorate is not. well, changing. But having knowledge
1: of the fact that they would look away from the fact that he was endorsed by the KKK and that he was openly racist and a sex offender. No, because
0: I study race politics. So none of all of that is completely predictable, completely predictable to me. It's not surprising for me. The long term effects are going to be, I think, felt most greatly in the institution. So. I did a forum a couple weeks ago where I told this huge room full of journalists that they were about to have a crisis with the election that was going to be like their generation's Watergate. I'm like, are you going to rise to the occasion and perform the duties of the fourth estate? Because whistleblowers need to have a whistle to blow. Are you going to be available when the call comes to turn the tables and risk your careers to save the democracy? Because that's going to be a thing that happens. And, of course, they were just like, oh, no, oh, no. You know, you're not a journalist. You don't understand. And yet here we are. And what is the question du jour? It is what was the role of journalists in propelling a Trump candidacy when dude didn't have to spend any money on media or have a ground game? And, I, I mean, they have culpability. And that's not to say that there aren't good journalists. Certainly in print there are. But television news is, I mean, dead. And they've just been getting trolled by Donald Trump. He's trolling them. And they're, then they can't pivot away back into ethics because all they want to do is make the money. And they are him. So that seems to be a problem. That's a problem. I think I'm most concerned about probably journalism, you know, as a hedge on this kind of authoritarianism. In terms of his cabinet level positions, which is just like a clown car of has been 1980s white man losers. I'm most concerned probably about the Department of Justice, but that's only because I can't let myself think about the possibility that he is going to actually withdraw the U.S. from NATO and precipitate a global international conflict. That's a hard thing for me to think about as somebody who teaches foreign policy classes. That's the scenario that I actually, you know, try to dance around the most. But domestically, I think it's going to be damage to the institution's faith and domestic institutions. And so if people want to do something to change the situation i need them to gear up for a generational struggle to rebuild american institutions and that means making them more inclusive and that means letting brown people and poor people and undocumented you know people participate in the structures of american democracy and that means a fundamental shift in the way that good white people do business. And that means good white people need to take responsibility for their complicity in white supremacy and in their cowardice in defending people of color when they controlled the White House or when they controlled Congress. Because it's not like the Democrats have been doing all this progressive stuff. So, you know, I think that people need to dig in their heels because it's going to be a generational fight to rebuild the institutions of American democracy. And they will fundamentally never look the same. Public education isn't going to look the same. At all. It's not a simple fix. You can't just put a safety pin on it and ameliorate your guilt, or then suddenly, because you have good intent, become this magical ally. You need to invest time
1: and energy into rebuilding those institutions. The fact that Trump was even a player in this election is frightening, as we said earlier. The fact that he even had the platform that he had, I mean, that alone indicates right a frightening reality about the kinds of values that people have whether he was elected or not i personally i thought things are bad you know things are bad
0: it was a referendum on the democratic party not actually making things better liberals don't hear that because they think that they're the good ones so they have this halo effect where they think Because
1: they... They're on the right side of history. They're on the right
0: side of history that everything that they do is good and how could they possibly lose. And obviously everybody just understands the stakes in the same way. And that's just garbage. That is complete garbage. And it is narcissism and it is navel-gazing and it is elitism. And it's wrong to think that. Everybody feels that way. I don't do the optimism. But the hopeful side of me, can say for sure that there are going to be opportunities to recalibrate the values of not just the parties, you know, the Republican, the Democratic Party, or third parties, but to fundamentally reconceptualize what kind of investment we want to put into our public institutions, our libraries, our justice system, the courts. I mean, this is a value moment where people are feeling called to reassess their time and their and their investment in their community and the kind of future that they want for like human society. Although domestically I think that journalism is the institution that's going to suffer the most and is the most disconcerting. The environment is completely host and I just don't see how the deregulation isn't going to massively accelerate climate change in a way that is fundamentally incompatible with human life. And so I will be very interested to see how the environmental justice movement reemerges in a different way and as a result of the kind of deregulation that I anticipate coming from a Trump presidency. And that should be disconcerting to everybody. The other thing is, is that 12 million people who voted for Trump marked him as unfavorable. They didn't like him and they didn't particularly vote for his policy suggestions. They just wanted change. There will be a threshold to see how quickly they peel away from his support and how quickly GOP members of Congress also peel away their support as he potentially damages the party brand, you know, into his presidency. So the midterm elections, I think, will going to be very, very telling in 2018. If the Democrats take back the Senate and if they win substantial House seats, the conversation, the power shifts again. Um, And so that will be, I think, a different kind of canary in the coal mine. Do you see a path
1: forward for lean back listeners, people who feel disengaged and disenfranchised and disempowered by Trump's election?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, it's, it's the job... For our listeners to create political pressure and political cover so that politicians and journalists can do the right thing. So that means, you know defending the institutions of democracy that matters. That means getting a digital subscription to the New York Times or resubscribing to the Atlantic or Mother Jones or the New Yorker or whatever or writing letters to the editor, resubscribing to local newspapers to create the political pressure for the kind of coverage that people want. So I think that that one step is to defend institutions of democracy. The other thing I would say is that leanback listeners need to not obey um, directives you know, now, because authoritarianism works when people freely give their power over to the authoritarian. And uh, in, in this kind of political climate, I think people need to think about what a more repressive government will want from them. And then, and not do that, right? So don't give them what you think that they will want from you. Don't bow to the power before it's demanded of you. That's how you sort of become a stalwart against the worst elements of this kind of chaotic authoritarianism. I also think that, you know, when, when you have somebody like Donald Trump who has no sense of professional ethics, it's very important for especially uh, professionals to recall uh, their institutional missions and their professional codes of ethics to help set the example for what our expectations are for how you treat people and because it's, you can't really be create a, a more authoritarian state without like lawyers, without expert testimonials, or without people participating in just that kind of mundane bureaucracy that we were talking about earlier in the episode. I also think people have to be kind to one another and be extremely deliberate with how they share their emotional labor with the most vulnerable parts of our community and where they share their money. So they should be spending money for Thanksgiving or for the holidays, um, defending poor people and people of color and queer people and women from the more pressing threats of their community. Because the fact of the matter is, is that Whatever happens in the executive branch is less likely to be as damaging as what's going to happen in state legislatures that have flipped to supermajorities that are GOP controlled. And that power is going to be basically unchecked. So people need to speak out and support community members that are vulnerable, and they need to speak the kind of You know, overarching humanist truths that knit communities back together. So, I actually am very hopeful that local communities will see an increase in people volunteering and participating in local county organs or, you know, state political party organs. I suspect right now you're seeing a huge run of people into the Democratic Party, which is going to be good for them. I suspect in the next two years you'll see it swing back to the Republican Party too, and the fact of the matter is is that the democracy is healthiest when you have a healthy Republican and a healthy Democratic Party, and right now both are pretty damaged, anemic, and regressive. I actually do have quite a bit of hope that tons of people are going to get involved in the political system in ways that will help funnel money and time into shoring up institutions that protect the most vulnerable. But they're just going to be doing it in a time of massive crisis instead of a time when there's, you know, tremendous resources abounding.
1: Initially, you were talking about subscribing to organizations and businesses with journalistic integrity, and you called them institutions of democracy. (laughs) I like that because I feel like reading anything is a precursor to empathy mm-hmm. uh, which is critical in times like these and that's I mean cultivating e- empathy and compassion is, is crucial if things become as difficult as you know they might as they might and as we've discussed I'm also wondering if you find social media to be an institution of democracy
0: no my gosh no (laughs) no no social media is all about aggregating you know bias so you're going to get stuff in your news feed that the algorithm suspects that you prefer and that's bad for democracy it's a feedback loop it's a feedback loop the other thing is is that you know (laughs) I feel like the antidote to authoritarianism is always to trust more in people okay so, you know, authoritarian power flourishes when people mistrust and are fearful of others who have been depicted as outsiders to the community. And one way to hedge against that is to demonstrate trust in the person cutting your hair or driving the bus or feeding you your meal or, you know, the sort of the everyday people that you run into at the post office. Though you so It's sort of a corporeal politics that I want people to embrace to get through this moment where you soften your speech and you open to others and you ask questions instead of stating your argument and you're making eye contact and you're doing that kind of embodied resistance to fear. And one of the things that's been interesting to see is how people are already pushing back in a very vocal way against the Trump nomination and marching or pushing back or trolling him on social media. Um, I mean, he obviously hasn't taken office yet, so I suppose there's a chance that that will change. But the vocality of it and the playfulness of it and um, the social connection around those acts of resistance are all harbingers of solid resistance. And so that is actually, I think, very comforting to me as somebody who teaches and thinks and writes about these, you know, regressive political moments.
1: So I really like your idea of social connection and network building and... Intimacy. Intimacy <laughs> as a mode of resistance. And I wonder... How, I mean, what are the appropriate strategies for cultivating that? I just want more <laughs> steps for going forward.
0: I mean, you have to be calm. One of the things that's a little problematic, perhaps, or at least dicey, is sort of the, the liberal hysteria around Trump is both good in creating awareness and is problematic because it keeps people in a fear cage and that does not allow them to act calmly towards others. And so when actual emergencies happen, then it's gonna be harder for people to think clearly and resist what will be the impulse to make more fascist sort of political decisions. Um, And so, you know, I think that people need to sort of um, think outside of the box and say new things and create new ideas and stop parroting crap that they see on the internet and on TV and invent new ways of seeing. And one of the reasons why I love Lean Back is because I feel like we are actively engaged in the struggle of making meaning out of different tools. And there is value, especially for progressives or liberals or disenfranchised um, Republicans to really reinvent language in ways that are, um, you know, politically... Changing that can change the kinds of futures that we want to usher in. But in order to do that, you have to stand out. And if everybody stands out, then nobody's left behind. And the people who are going to be forced to, to stand out are the ones who are already marked as outsiders. So stand with them. <laughs> stand instead of them. You know, stand out intellectually, philosophically, oratorically, you know, in ways that shift space around. Because if you're just sharing, 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 sharing somebody else's words, it's very hard for you to create the space to think your own thoughts. And to that end, then, I also think that people need to be creating, cultivating very um, meaningful private lives. And so they should be doing things off of social media. And they should be having personal conversations in person. And they should be doing the work to get out of their comfort zones and be uncomfortable. And, and it's, it's especially incumbent upon white people and straight people um, to do that work of discomfort. Because white people are not uncomfortable very often. And straight people aren't uncomfortable very often. And I, I mean, I'm, being, I'm generalizing here, but only to the extent that um, I want to think through what it means to feel vulnerable with other people, not just focused on your own well-being. Because if people just focus on their pers- their own person or their immediate family, then they're doing nothing to advance the goal of democracy or to resist what is you know, a problematic political moment. So, you know, as we think about moving forward, I just really want people to be reflexive about the kinds of space they're taking up in the community and whether it is, you know, positive, productive, intimate, relational space, or whether it is fearful, paranoid, you know, um, self-involved, I don't want them to be reactionary. I want them to be proactive and create the space ahead of time. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the
1: University of Arkansas.